Okay, a little bit of a break from my normal series, series on Nisim, the series on Tehillim, the series on War and Morality, although I'm thinking maybe this should be part of the War and Morality series, but it's a little bit different, so this will be a standalone conversation. I just feel like it's Thursday, I think it's January 11th, it's been a tough week, and we lost two Talmudim in battle, two Talmudim of mine, so I feel very drained, very drained, but I feel that there's something happening in our people, in our world, and I want to try to provide some Religious framing, prophetic framing. As I speak, the uh, Jewish people, represented by the state of Israel, are being put on trial. Put on trial in the Hague or the Hague, not sure how you pre- how you pronounce it, in the Netherlands, and of course the uh, country of South Africa. Children of Ham are uh, securing their place in history. They're a very bad place in history to be, amongst Haman and Hitler, Yamach Shimo, and Tsarist Russia, and the Spanish Inquisition. So the list goes on. We thought that the horrible beasts of Hamas um, finished the list, but evidently there's a line to get on that list. And they're, of course, condemning themselves to, to um, the fate that awaits Sony Yisrael. Um, and it's blatant, it's clear, in ways that some of the murkiness and vagueness surrounding some of the protesters in America and universities in Europe. I'm not referring to the Arab protesters who are screaming to kill Jews, but I'm referring to those who want a ceasefire, those who want to free Palestine. They're, they're uneducated, they're stooges, they're foolish, they're young, they're being drawn in by the herd. But you could argue whether they are or aren't anti-Semitists. They just they believe in their worldview, their hyper-liberal worldview. They bought, they bought into the, the theory of, of the occupationists and the imperialists and the colonialists. But this is blatant anti-Semitism. This is blatant. And for those of you who need a little history lesson, the PLO, when it was, which it still is, but certainly when it was purely a terror organization in the 90s, actually shared office space across the world with the ANC, which was the, the arm of the, I don't know what the exact term was then, but basically the violent resistance arm of, the, of Nelson Mandela and the movement, the legitimate movement to, to grant colored citizens of South Africa equal rights, um, which by and large is, is a good and, and desirable movement. But this is uh, just seeing them wearing kafias to this, to this mock trial. The question is, what does Tanakh have to say about this? How can we gain strength in Amuna from looking back to our sources? That's sometimes the role of a rabbi. It's not my role to deliver political theories or cultural theories, although the, certainly cultural issues are impacted by religious and moral thought. But I'm sure all the political responses and framing this properly, it's not necessarily my role, but to try to frame it from a prophetic or Tanakh standpoint. So it all returns to the Pasuk in Yeshaya, Pasuk which the Rambam quoted. And let me frame the Pasuk before I actually quote it. But just if you want to look inside, it's a Pasuk in Yeshaya, Perak Nundala, chapter 54, Pasuk Zion, verse 7. But let's go back to the 12th century, as we always have to do to frame anti-Semitism properly. This isn't new, this is old. As I posted about a week ago, every anti-Semite is ultimately also a plagiarist, because there's nothing really new about anti-Semitism. It's all just recycling. Okay, amidst this this world in which many of the people who were accused of, if not anti-Semitism, at least <coughs> tolerating anti-Semitism, were also uncovered to be plagiarists, and they're really the same. 
Okay, the Rambam in the 12th century wrote a famous letter to uh, the people of Yemen, the community of Yemen. And again, don't assume that the Rambam and the people of Yemen had that much in common beforehand. Yemenites are not Svartim, Yemenites are Yemenites. It's a separate community. In today's world, in which we create a division, not division, not strife, but partitioning of Minhagim and Shuls between Svartim and Ashkenazim, in the absence of a Yemenite shul, so Yemenites tend to follow customs that can be more easily shoehorned into Svarti davening, so they'll daven together. But, for example, in Alon Shvut, where I live, there is a Svarti minion. There are, of course, multiple Ashkenazi minyanim. And there's a Yemenite minion that's completely separate. Uh, the Yemenites trace their, their community to Bais Rishon, maybe even before the Gullus, maybe during the Gullus. So it's a separate, standalone community. Yehudut Teman. And of course, just a little bit of background. In modern times, the Yemenite community, much of it was airlifted in a very, very miraculous, sudden operation, one of the legendary operations in Israel, called Kanfei Nisharim, Wings of Eagles, Mirvat HaKsamim, Magic Carpet, various airlifts of massive amounts of Jews from Yemen in the late 40s and early 50s of the previous century. And it's just a little background. Okay, but in the 12th century, the Yemenite community was facing a very disheartening dual tragedy, or trauma is a better word. First of all, they were played by another one of the false messiahs, promising everyone a golden utopia, promising everyone. And of course, when it didn't come true, as always, false messiahs create expectations, which when unfulfilled, create hopelessness, despair, frustration. Just look at Parshas. Just to bring the parsha in, why did the Jews not listen to Moshe when they did heed Moshe's rallying call in Parsha Shmos? And one of the answers the Chizkuni says is that they had already been burnt. They had lent their support, they had raised their excitement, they were in a state of euphoric anticipation, and it all went south and the wheels came off and Pyro didn't listen and their workload was enhanced, it was intensified, excuse me. There's an escalation of violence, so... Of course they're going to be cautious, and of course they're going to be sullen and depressed. In addition, in the 12th century, middle 12th century, 1140s or so, I don't have the exact dates in front of me, but in that period, the um, Yemenite community was also facing one of the various waves of Islamic fundamentalist oppression, which, by the way, the Rambam also faced in southern Spain, forcing the Rambam to relocate. I don't remember if it was the exact movement, but there were various movements without getting into the details and into the weeds of which movement it was, but they were being forcibly converted, forcibly exiled, forcibly persecuted by an Islamic fundamentalist movement. Okay, um, in Christian lands, well, I don't want to get into the difference between Christian oppression and Islamic oppression. That's for a different time. So they were depressed, and they wrote a letter to the Rambam, and the Rambam wrote a letter back called Igeris Teman, or Pesach Tikva, which is a window of hope, which of course became, based on a Pasuk, became the name of one of the newer towns in Eretz Israel, Petach Tikva, as we call it, in modern parlance. And a very famous letter in which the Rambam is conscious that he's writing a letter to support this community, raise their spirits, reinforce their faith. Chazek Yadayim Koshlos Vibirkayim. I forget the exact words, I don't have this letter in front of me. Chazek Yadayim Rafos Vibirkayim Koshlos. To strengthen. Weakening hands and wavering knees. Anyway, in this very, very legendary letter, and maybe I'll dedicate an entire 
podcast a recording to the letter, because these letters can help us 800 years after they were written. In this letter, the Rambam cites our Pasuk. What's our Pasuk? Here it is. Kol kli lo yitzlach. Any kli, which literally translates into a vessel or an object, but in this context means a weapon, Yeshaya promises us any kli, any weapon that's raised against us will fail. Again, kol kli, any weapon, yutsar alayich will be created against you, lo yitzlach, will fail. Hashem promises us. And then there's the second part of this Pasuk, and that's the topic of this discussion. V'chol lashon, in any tongue, takum itach mishpat, raised against you in justice, tarshi, will itself be indicted. Interpreting this Pasuk, the Rambam informs the community that in every generation, b'chol dar vador, and again, we're studying part of our resistance and our response to anti-Semitism is to study it more deeply and understand it more deeply and be prepared for it and understand that there's nothing new about it. It's all just recycled, as I said before, plagiaristic recycling. The Rambam says in every generation, the assault against us is a dual assault. There's the obvious assault, the persecution, the pogroms, the massacre, the murder, the attack, whatever, the, the physical component, the material component, the murderous component. But then there's another element, and that's the tongue. And the tongue is raised against us. And the Navi is promising us that the weapons will fail and the tongue will be thwarted. Let me take a few steps back. Then I'll discuss the Rambam's interpretation of the 12th century. And then I will update the Rambam with what seems to be, ironically, a more literal reading of this second phrase of the tongue, that we are experiencing as I record this year, based on the events in the Netherlands. In every generation, there has to be a narrative that debases, dehumanizes, criminalizes, vilifies the Jewish people. Is it technically necessary to sell their genocide to innocent people? And again, it's important, it's not always easy, to discriminate between Haters and stooges. I don't know if you went to most of these Ivy League colleges. Do they really hate Jews or are they just unenlightened, uneducated, simply buying into postmodernism narratives because they're lazy? They're victims of intersectionality, which implies that if you d- defend one aggrieved party, you have to defend all aggrieved parties, and it's easy for them to tag aggrieved parties. It's hard to know, just like it's hard to know in Asa someone who has children in the army, and I talk with them, ki ein bayis asher ein sham, mavis. Every house they turn to has ammunition, propaganda, booby traps, tunnels. So of course they're innocent civilians in Asa, but don't fall into the simple narrative that anyone who's not wearing a green headband and carrying an AK-47 is an innocent civilian. It doesn't in any way, even if one innocent civilian dies in Asa, it's something we have to at least concern ourselves with. I don't know that it changes our policy, but we don't celebrate the death of any innocents. But in your conversations, don't just fall into the trap that anyone who isn't battling us from tunnels is an innocent civilian. They held hostages, concealed weapons, deliver information to Hamasi Machshimam. But either way, either way, there needs to be a narrative of hating Jews. There needs to be a verbalization and a vilification of us in order to sell their hatred and their genocide to the average innocent 
pious, kind person. And that narrative always changes. But even if it's not technically necessary, and it started with Paro in last week's parasha, where we were cast as this fifth column that would join the enemies, the Hittites probably, when they attacked Egypt. And it always changed, the narrative changed. We were the monotheists who were threatening the life of indulgence that paganism offered. And then when the world became monotheistic, we had murdered the new prophets and crucified him, and we were reenacting that on a yearly basis in our Passover rituals by drinking the blood and reenacting the crucifixion. And then when religion started to become less popular in the 19th century, it turned into post-Darwinism. We were a sub-Aryan race, and populations, just like nature, had to be cleansed of the weaker elements in order to survive. And everyone bought into that. And now, of course, all that post-Darwinism racial theory is bunk and is not politically correct. So the new theory is oppressed, oppressor, democracy creates equality, offers equality, which, of course, it does and it should. And therefore, democracy not only has to offer equality in the contemporary civic setting to all citizens, but has to undo all the past grievances and all the past offenses to any party that's ever been offended, which may or may not be true. But when you simply overlay that in the land of Palestine, it's clear that we are the David who are, we are the Goliath who are abusing the rights of the underprivileged David. Of course, if you shrink down to what's happening in Gaza, rather than zooming out to the entire 75 years of our history with everyone around us. Is that narrative only technically necessary? Is it a way to demean us and to debase us and to humiliate us and part of the psychological tor- um, terror which has always afflicted our people? In some cases, is inherited even beyond just the death. Someone dies, the next generation doesn't inherit death, but you can inherit humiliation, debasement, being treated like a second class, being treated like the other, being treated in discriminatory and and humiliating fashion and dismissive fashion. But either way, it happens in every generation. The Rambam writes, and now getting to the second part, in the 12th century, the Rambam interpreted this Pasuk and that verbal assault as the attempt to dispel, to repudiate, to um, defame Torah Shebaalpeh, Torah in general, all the great theological trials of the medieval period. In particular, the trial in France, the trial in Barcelona, these are probably the two most famous times that Torah in general and the Talmud in particular was put on trial. In Barcelona, 1263, in France, 1240, known as the Great Disputations. So for the Rambam, Yeshaya promises us that as hard as they try theologically to dispel, to dismiss, to defame, to repudiate, to debunk, they'll fail. And of course, that prophecy, as every prophecy, has come true. Our Talmud has survived, our Torah has survived, our faith has survived, and despite all the efforts, all the attempts to try to put Torah on trial, chal lashon, takum itach mishpat tarshi. So that's what the Pasuk meant in the 13th century. Obviously the Rambam lived in the 12th century, so he's referring to the environment, and I'm sure there were trials against Judaism that aren't as legendary and as infamous in the Rambam century, but that's what he's referring to. And Rambam recounts all the attempts throughout history to attack Jewish faith, Jewish ideology, Jewish value systems, and of course, Jewish Torah. So that's how the Rambam interpreted the Pasuk. Again, the Pasuk has two parts to it. 
the weapons, and the verbal assault, the verbal assault changes throughout each generation. In the 12th and 11th century, 12th century, 13th century, for the Rambam, it was the theological attempts to dispel or to uh, disavow the validity and the accuracy of Torah. That was 800 years later, and so can evolve as history evolves. And we're at the end of history. Right? Of course we're at the end of history. We don't know how quickly it will end. All these phrases are confusing to me. I'm just a simple person. I don't know. Rationists, I just know we're in the end of history. Holocaust was the worst nightmare of human history, of human experience, certainly of the Jewish experience. We now know, our generation knows what the Holocaust is because we suffered a Holocaust for a day. Obviously, you can't compare the two. But there's a little bit of a taste of what it was like. And of course, that should influence our thinking, our speech. How dare any Jew ever, ever call another Jew a Nazi? I always thought that was a... That was a, an unspeakable crime. I couldn't imagine, and it caused me such pain when I saw it and heard it. But certainly now, any Jew who uses that term to refer to another Jew should be unjewed, should be lambasted. How dare you, after what we've experienced? Toward the end of history, and this Pusik's prophecy is becoming more accurate and different resolution. And today... January 11th, Rosh Chodesh Shvat, we are literally living this Pasuk. Because the verbal attack is not theological. Who thinks about theology anymore? It's not about monotheism or paganism. It's not about diplomacy and milit that the Jews are joining our enemies, Haman's verbal attack. It's not Darwinistic and racial. It's not... We are literally being put on trial... <laughs> I'm laughing when I'm saying this. By the nations of the world. We're being tried for wanting to live. We are being tried for wanting to breathe. We are being tried for hunting down people who continue to profess their desire to spill our blood, rape our women, mutilate our bodies, burn our homes, and kill Jews around the world. And it pays to remember the Haftach of Hashem. V'chal lashon takum itach lamishpat tar shi'i. Those tongues will be indicted. Not just will they be thwarted, but the hypocrisy itself. Those people who are lining up, they themselves will be indicted by heaven, and hopefully will also be indicted by man when their hypocrisy and their own inner immorality by supporting murder and supporting pogrom, they'll be indicted. So a lot is happening today. Open up a Yeshaya, Parak Nandalad, Pasuk Zion. Read Yeshaya if you have a moment. Read the Rambam, Igeris Teman. Hopefully, hopefully, we walk with faith and courage, and that faith and courage gives us the inner strength to face these mockeries of justice. And to Daven Takarish Baruchu tonight. If you're listening to this beforehand, Mincha, maybe Marev, I'm listening to this before Marev. Hashiba Shafteinu Kivorishana, Vyotzin Kivatchila, Vesemi Meriagon Manacham, Locha Lena Shem Wakino, Barachata Shem Melech Ohev, Sadaka Homishbat, Akarish Baruchu loves, desires justice and charity, and justice is being 
vandalized and marred before our eyes. And Hashem isn't happy about this. Not only are his people being vilified, but justice itself is being vandalized. So we ask the Kodesh Baruch Hu to restore justice. Amalekha Mishpat.